Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are the author and foundation of our hope, for you have set our hope firm in Jesus Christ. Enable us to rely with confident expectation upon your promises, knowing that the trials and hindrances of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And having our faces steadfastly set toward the light that shines more and more to that perfect day through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray now that you would be present with us as that great and mighty Lord for us and our Savior. In his Christ's name we pray. Amen. First hymn is number five, God my King, thy might confess him. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on him, and to our God, 
for he will abundantly pardon. Let us confess our sin together to Almighty God. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in our ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Since, therefore, we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, have been subject to lifelong bondage. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us say together, praise be to God. The first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord God brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt into the land where they might freely worship and serve him. And God has brought us out of the horrendous bondage of sin, death, and the devil. In Christ, God has claimed us. He has claimed us in love and grace. The scripture says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And the Lord's mark is upon us, we belong to him. Now, that might seem stifling. For some reason, we get all that turned around, and we feel like we're being restricted when we become Christians because we're used to this definition of freedom in our society where it means that I can do anything I want to do. And so when you come into uh, really any kind of discipline, but uh, particularly the Christian way of life and Christian discipline, it seems like you're narrowed a little bit. But that's a good thing. Um, as much as that is true, it's a good thing, and we, we think we can do more than we can without Christ, but in Christ we are given an immense freedom from those things that would hold us captive, that would bond, make, be bondage for us, and we're set free to live in Christ, serve Christ, and be Christ's people. Remember that he has claimed you in love and grace. Also remember that the bondage of sin and the devil crushed you as a harsh taskmaster. That's one of the deceptive things about our society is that it, it, it doesn't recognize the, the actual bondage or, or crushing effect of sin and the devil. God has claimed you in Christ. Therefore, through faith in Christ, we live in absolute loyalty to him. Your bodies are not your own. You may not do whatever you wish with them because Christ has set you free from immorality and those passions. Your possessions are not your own. They are to be used for the glory of God. Your work is not your own for your own satisfaction, although it's good to be satisfied with your work, but that's not its ultimate purpose. Its purpose is to serve God. You are not God of your own life. Jesus Christ has freed us to serve him and him alone. He is our Lord. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 163, At the Name of Jesus. the name. 
sure you pay attention to the news as much as I do, the news of what's happening in churches. We get some of that. Also, what's happening in our nation, what's happening in the world. And these are the things that we bring to the Lord in our ministry of prayer together. Let us bow our heads. Almighty and eternal God, who by your holy apostles has taught us to make prayers and supplications for all people, not just for ourselves, we humbly ask you mercifully to receive these, our prayers this morning, which we bring to you knowing that you are the majestic, divine, holy, transcendent God. And we ask you to hear our prayers, for we make them in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray you would inspire continually the whole church around this world with the Holy Spirit who gives faith and unity and peace, the Spirit who works with the Word. And we pray and we ask you to grant that all those who confess your holy name may agree in the truth of your holy word and live in unity and godly love. Hear our prayers, O Lord, for, the, for these things for the church. We 
We call out to you to lead all nations in your way of righteousness, justice, and peace, and so direct all governments and rulers, that under them Christ's people may be free to worship you and proclaim the gospel, and that there would also be good social order for all, for all people. Guide Joe Biden, our president, Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our senators, the courts, Gretchen Whitmer and all who serve in our government, and the Supreme Court, all of these, O Lord, that they may truly and impartially administer justice, that it would be for the punishment of wickedness and vice, that it would be for the maintenance of goodness and virtue, that there would be an end to the shootings that have become a normal um, thing every week and that there would be social order. We also pray to this end for the termination of abortion, for the illegality of pornography, for the restraint of greed, for the honor of marriage, for help for the poor, and persecution of uh, the prosecution of those who are violent towards other people. We also pray for the end of prejudice. Here are our prayers for our nation, and we do also remember all the people who have been devastated by the tornadoes in the South and ask that you would send them aid, find the ones who have been uh, wounded or trapped, and we pray for their relief. Hear us, O Lord, as we pray for those who lead us and for our nation. Guide and prosper, we pray you, those who are laboring for the spread of the gospel among the nations. We ask that you would enlighten all places with Christian knowledge so that people everywhere may be filled with your truth. Here are our prayers for our missionaries, Hiro Hakobor and the church in Ukraine, along with his family, and we ask that you keep them safe in a very, very dangerous place. We pray for Ben Westerveld in Quebec and his family, the church there, for the Christians who are in Canada. We also pray for the churches and Christians in Mexico, many of whom live in fear of the drug cartels. And we pray for the churches in the Middle East where there is so much um, uh, violence and war. We pray you would stop the violence and terrorism that has spread in this world. And today we pray and especially remember the people of Nicaragua and Mexico. Hear our prayers. Convert the lost, O blessed Jesus Christ. Make rebels fall on their knees and praise your name. Turn the hearts of the wicked to you. We bring our petitions to you for those among our families and acquaintances who do not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and and their Savior. Hear our prayers for them. Merciful Father, give to all your people your heavenly grace, and especially to this congregation present here, so that with humble heart and proper reverence they may hear and receive your word and truly serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of their lives. Comfort, strengthen, and help all of your people who are in trouble, sorrow, sickness, adversity, or in some kind of need. Bless them and preserve them, O Lord. Hear our prayers, especially now for Shirley and Eduardo, for Luca, for Julie, Fawn, Jeff, and Frida, and our friends Becky, Phil, Dominic, Tammy's family, Tom, Bob, Chris, Angie, Karen, Gladys, and all those we name to you in silence. Amen. 
You are our only help in time of need. You are the source of all good that comes to us. We humbly ask you to behold and visit and relieve your servants. Look upon them with the eyes of your mercy. Comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Preserve them from the temptations of the enemy. And give them patience under their affliction. And in your good time, we pray you'd restore them. Give to them what they need and enable them always to lead their lives in reverence of your name. Continue to bless Providence Church with the ministry of Christ, and we pray for more and more people to be joined with us in faithful worship of you and loving service together. And now, O Lord, we give you our praise and heartfelt thanks for all of your holy people, for the congregation of your blessed people in Christ, who through their various places in life have been your witnesses to your grace in the world. We pray rejoicing in in their fellowship and following their good examples, and may we be partakers with them of your heavenly kingdom. Here are prayers that we make by your Spirit, our Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We do have uh, this offering that we will collect. I, I didn't get it into the bulletin, but we will collect the diaconal offering too at its appropriate time, if I remember. So if the ushers could please come forward and collect that offering.
We are preparing, as I look up a, a passage I wanted to read, um, to pray our prayer of illumination. We ask the Lord's help in order to receive his word. I, I want to read from Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let us pray. Father, um, we await the working of your word, your spirit in our hearts, that we might rejoice in uh, who you are and your love for us. And uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our reading is in Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six, breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, and who trusted him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language, that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb.
and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province in Babylon, the province of Babylon. Our Psalter response, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the, the destruction that wastes at noonday. You will only look with your own, with your eyes, and see the recompense of the wicked. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent will trample on your Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls me, I will answer him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Our second reading is in Revelation chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is, is the number of a man, and his number is six. Six, six. 
And now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Uh, Beginning in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father and his child, the father his child. The children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The word of the Lord. One of my prayers for our nation, its government, and the society in which we live is that it has have an awareness of God's transcendence. That is, God greater than ourselves, our society, and our government. Now, I realize that's not asking for much as far as Christian prayers go, yet yet in our society, that's a big prayer. This prayer lacks much that we Christians usually pray for, like unbelievers to convert to God, who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, faith in the triune God, conversion of people who would join the Christian church in its faith and repentance. And I do pray for all those things. I don't want you to think that I only have one prayer. But that is my basic prayer is that even if there is no large conversion in our nation to Jesus Christ, at least may there be the great, the basic recognition that God has transcended over us. He is our creator. He's the basis of our morality and salvation comes from him. I pray this because a society that does not even have the basic awareness of a transcendent God can easily try to make itself transcendent. Just like each one of us can be tempted, societies and governing authorities can be tempted. And one of the biggest temptations for our society and government today is to claim that it is ultimate. It can be tempted to believe that it has the ultimate authority, that it's the ultimate judge of what's right and wrong, that it deserves the ultimate obedience and reverence of all the people under it. In short, societies with their governing authorities can believe that they are Lord, and that's what the Bible calls idolatry. The second commandment in the Bible is talking about that. This is the commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In our epistle lesson from Revelation, 
in that lesson, it's using its highly stylized apocalyptic language, it imagines the Roman state as a dragon and a beast that sets itself up against God and his church. Verse 4 of chapter 13, that wasn't our text, but it's, it, it, there's a lot there. And in verse 4, the text says, Men worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So instead of worshiping God and the Lamb who are seated on the throne, and we, we see that in the first section of Revelation, instead of worshiping God and the Lamb on the throne, they worship the beast. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, O beast. Setting anything up as ultimate in our personal lives or in society and government above the God who created the heavens and the earth is idolatry. Once a society with its governing authority makes itself ultimate, it becomes an idolatrous state. And it doesn't matter if it's a religious society or a secular society. Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar was a religious society. There was no division between the sacred and the secular. Its gods and politics, its arts and sciences were all mixed together. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this clear in verse 14 when he asks Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego this question. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? The king says my gods, politics, religion, easily joined together. Babylon, in Daniel chapter 3, was an idolatrous, political, religious society. And there have been other religious societies that have claimed ultimate authority and demanded worship. Even nations that have been heavily shaped by Christianity have become idolatrous. Germany was one of those nations. This is what Balder von Schirach, the head of the Hitler Youth Movement in Germany, said in 1936. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, the Lord serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Christians have sometimes made their politics and preferred government, whoever they think should be in power, have sometimes, Christians have made them, those things, ultimate. But if there's anything the 20th century has taught us is that secular nations can also claim ultimate allegiance. This is not just something that religious societies can do. The Soviet Union made itself ultimate while its agents infiltrated the church and did everything they could to bring the Russian Orthodox Church under the power of the state. And China is another one that claims that the Communist Party is above all in the nation, and it insists that the Catholic Church give the government a say in who is appointed bishop in that nation, and that's a very recent uh, problem going on. North Korea is a very secular nation, and it's one that mercifully, mercilessly persecutes the religious and demands loyalty to the personality cult of its leader. The belief in a transcendent God, a God who is greater than us, has been receding in our society, even though most Americans still believe there is a God. But that a God who's above us, transcendent over us, that has been receding. It's been receding in two ways. First, instead of, being, instead of God being the transcendent one over us, we have made ourself transcendent. Carl Truman has traced this back to the ideas of some of the key modern thinkers, namely Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. They undermine society's belief in a foundation of transcendence for human nature, human destiny, and human society. So they, these thinkers had ideas that, that undermined um, how, the, how we think today about what is ultimate. 
and whether there is anything that's ultimate and transcendent. Myself decides who I am, what is right and wrong, and what is the meaning and goal of my life. And this is even extended to God. Today, there's a strong belief in society that God does not make us, we make God. Now, this may not be a conscious belief. It may not be that people are going around thinking about that as, as they think about reality and the way things are, but it's there. It's, it's almost a subconscious sort of commitment today that God doesn't make us, we make God. We make God be the way we want him to be. So belief in God, and for many, has become a way to personal fulfillment. This has had an enduring effect on our society, our government, and our politics. The other way belief in a transcendent God over us has receded is the pluralism of our society. We live in a society that has a huge smorgasbord of religions, personal faiths, and ideas about God and what is ultimate. Charles Taylor explains that instead of one shared belief in a transcendent God, today there is Today, belief in God is only one among many contested opinions, and opinions, and that's how they're considered, opinions. As a result, belief in a transcendent, ultimate God is reduced to just one option among many. So what this has done is create a vacuum for loyalty and obedience and worship, or at least it's created general confusion. You see, 330 million selves cannot be ultimate in a society. That just won't work. It's tempting for the state to move into this vacuum and confusion. And that's why I pray that there will be a greater awareness of God who is the transcendent ultimate one over us and our society. Now, Daniel chapter 3 is about a state claiming ultimate authority and worship for itself and Christian confession. Idolatrous states demand total loyalty from everyone, including Christians. The setting for our lesson in Daniel is the religious political kingdom of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as its king. The king set up an image of the ultimate authority and rule and lordship of Babylon. Babylon's Babylon's God and king and authority, they were all merged together in this image. According to the dimensions, it was probably set on a platform. Otherwise, it would have been a very precarious image. Because the whole thing, if you figure out the cubits, cubits, uh, the size of this thing, in feet, it was probably 10 feet by 100 feet. So scholars believe it was an image sitting on a platform. That's, That's how it would have been stable. It was large, no matter what, a very large image, and big is imposing and it demands respect. So it's it's no accident that it's huge. But it was also extraordinary for a large statue like this to be made of gold, because it would have taken a lot of gold. There's some conjecture that you know Babylon, as it invaded and conquered other kingdoms, would have stolen or, or confiscated their gold and, and valuable metals probably did that with the temple, or did do that with the temple in Jerusalem. So it could have been made, the, the, whether it's solid gold or gold-plated, it would have taken tons of gold, and it could have been used from the gold taken from these other kingdoms, including the temple in Jerusalem. That is probably what was used to help to make it. The king had it set outside, set up in a flat space for the bowing down ceremony. And all of the officials and state dignitaries were to be present. Verse 2 in the text says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
The ceremony was a cosmopolitan affair. Babylon was an empire. They had conquered, it had conquered many cities and kingdoms from the Persian Sea all the way over to the Nile River in Egypt. That's a big area with a lot of small kingdoms within it and cities. And there were many different kinds of people and languages and cultures and religions, and they were all brought together into King Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And among them, of course, were the Jews. The leaders of all these different people served in the king's court, and he demanded their presence at the ceremony. But it wasn't just about attendance. It was about ultimate loyalty, obedience, and worship. The king commanded all of the people lined up in front of the image to bow down and worship it. Verse 4 has the king's herald proclaiming, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, and I won't repeat all of them again, as we heard so many times in that story, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You see, it was a command that came with a threat. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It didn't matter who you were or what god you worshipped, you were expected to bow down to the golden image of Babylon. Everyone was to offer ultimate obedience, loyalty, and worship to the king's image. But it was not just a stand-alone image, just an image out there, and it's almost a farce because, as we would look at it today, it's just this gold-plated thing that is definitely odd and um, and you know imposing. But still, it it looks just—it's just an image sitting out there. But that's not the way it would have been understood in those days. It was not a standalone image. The king was personally tied to it. The kingdom of Babylon was personally tied to it. You might say the lordship of the golden image was reflected in the king. And that's why the king was enraged when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to the image. It was not simply because they disobeyed the king's command. They were also not bowing down to the king by not bowing down to the image. Idolatrous states use coercion to force people to bow to them. In Daniel, Babylon did it with a threat of death. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It was an exertion of power over their life. After Babylon, the Greeks attacked Jerusalem and the Jews, and once again, the king, this time King Antiochus Epiphanes, created an idolatrous state and demanded the Jews turn away from their God and bow down to him. And he took it to Jerusalem. He took it into their temple. He marched into the temple in Jerusalem. He had his soldiers set up an image of Zeus on the altar of God. And then he sacrificed pigs on it, which, as you know, would have been offensive to the Jews. Zeus, though, in in the cult of Zeus, pigs were often sacrificed. Antiochus demanded the Jews show ultimate loyalty to him and to his gods. Taking control of the city, he menaced the Jews to obey him. So here was another government that used coercion to make the people of God offer ultimate loyalty to it. The Roman Empire became an idolatrous state. That is the historical context for the book of Revelation. Caesar Augustus established the emperor cult, and worship of the emperor was required of the citizens of the Roman Empire, and it continued with all the Caesars after him. An altar was set up in the towns around the empire, and once a year, everyone was expected to bring an offering to the altar at the local temple of of Caesar. 
And by that act of worship, they were showing ultimate loyalty to Caesar. This clashed with the church's ultimate loyalty to God. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Our lesson from Revelation 13 depicts the beast blaspheming God and making war on the church to conquer it. The idolatrous state uses force and coercion to try to make Christians give it ultimate loyalty. And if we zip far ahead into the 20th century, Germany became an idolatrous state in the middle of the 20th century. Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party quickly moved to take control of all the institutions in Germany. They came for the trade unions, and they demanded that they give their loyalty to Hitler above all else. They went after the schools and universities, including the church-affiliated institutions, and they required the teachers and staff pledge their ultimate devotion to the Nazi party. It was the same for the members of other political parties, like the Socialists and the German Democratic Party. They had to bow to the Nazi party and its leader, Hitler. And they also tried to make the churches, unite the churches under Hitler. They created what was called the German Church, and they had their own Reich bishop. And there began to be a movement um, against that by the confessing church they called themselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those. But Hitler was definitely trying to bring the churches into submission under him to declare him the ultimate Fuhrer, the Lord. And if you don't bow to them, then you might have your property vandalized or confiscated. You could have been imprisoned, maybe even executed in Germany. In our society, there are political powers that try to set themselves up as ultimate over everyone else. They do not have the gleam of a large golden statue like Nebuchadnezzar's, but they demand everyone bow to them just the same. There are enormous pressures in our society to make political, certain political powers lord. Now, on some things, it's not a matter of lordship, such as the government wanting to move society from oil to electricity. We might not like it. It might cause us hardship, but it's not about the government trying to make itself the transcendent God. On other things, there is a pressure to bow to the political power or some political power as ultimate. And when political powers want society to bow to their definition of what it means to be a person or gender identity or marriage or a baby in the womb, then it's a matter of who is Lord and who is ultimate over us. Governments in our society have tried to coerce the church to submit to them. They have tried, I'm not saying with everything, but in certain cases they have. They have tried to force the Catholic Religious Institute, known as the Little Sisters of the Poor, to join its new health care system. And the sisters refused because they did not want to fund abortions. The government brought a lawsuit to try and force them to comply, and so it was a matter of ultimate loyalty in this case of abortion. The state or God? Strong political pressure is mounting for churches to promote the gay lifestyle by performing marriages and affirming it. Not just living in in the midst of that going on, but actually making the church comply and perform marriages and affirm it. And some want to penalize churches that will not do so. This also is a matter of who is ultimate in matters of sexuality and marriage, God or the state. We Christians must make our confession of faith in God in this society where, in spite of our constitutional right of freedom of religion, the society makes its claim for ultimate authority and tries to coerce those who refuse to give it. In this context, we must make our confession of faith. 
God empowers our confession of faith in an idolatrous, coercive society. And in the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, God is powerfully present with them. They made their confession of faith. You might have missed it, but it was, that's exactly what it was. The confession, they made their confession of faith in verses 16 to 18. The king threatened to throw them into the blazing furnace if they did not bow to the golden image, and he taunted them, and he taunted their God. You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Not your God. That was the implication. The three men of faith responded, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have, need to, we have no need to answer you about whether our God will deliver us or not. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This confession of faith is that God is the ultimate one, not the king, not King Nebuchadnezzar, and not the gods of Babylon. In short, they confessed that the God who created the heavens and earth, the God who formed Israel, is the Lord. The idolatrous king had them bound with ropes and thrown into the blazing furnace. He wanted to burn up those who would not submit to him as Lord and burn up their faith. Those who claim to be ultimate cannot allow any opposition to their lordship. This furnace was probably like other furnaces that had been discovered from that time. It was made of metal, shaped like a large football set into the ground, standing on one end with a hole on top and an opening on the side. And this design allowed it to be heated to a very high temperature. The three were cast into the furnace, but inside something hidden was made visible to them and is made visible to you. The king looked inside and saw four men unbound walking around, not three. Three had been thrown in, and yet there were four inside. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, said the king, because he was looking in from the side. The fourth is called an angel later, but that is saying nothing less than that God was present with the three. It was an appearance of the Lord, which in the book of Daniel is mediated by the angels. Now, there needs to be some clarification here. The confession of faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did not cause the Lord to appear, which might be one way we we read it. The Lord was present so that the three could make their confession of faith. You see, it is God's power that allows the faithful to refuse to bow down to the idolatrous powers of this world and confess their faith. God was present with the three even before the angel appeared in the furnace. The power to confess that God is Lord always comes from God. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did not have that power in themselves to refuse to bow down to the king's statue, which you might think, okay, they were amazing. They were extraordinary, spectacular models of of confession of faith. I can't do that. If I I stood, if I was being threatened and going to be thrown into this horrible furnace, I'd cave in. Well, the whole point here is that they were not any different than anyone else. It's not by their power that they could do it. We three, the three, did not have the power in themselves to confess with their mouths, we serve God alone. We don't have that power either. We cannot even confess the faith, with faith, the creed that we say in worship without the power of God present with us. In a minute, we will say the creed because there's a baptism today. It'll be the Apostles' Creed. And with faith, we cannot confess that without the power of God. The power comes from God, 
the power that comes from God is not some kind of a, a, an energy that gives us courage. It's not like a power drink that God hands to us, which is then supposed to boost our confession. I don't know what color it would be, blue, red. The power of God for our confession of faith comes from the presence of God with us. See, it's not something that's handed to us and now we just have it and we need to pass it around in the church. It comes from the presence of God with his people. And that's what Jesus told his disciples in our gospel lesson in Matthew. When they deliver you up, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit of God is present with us, helping us confess our faith. What does the power of God's presence do for our confession of faith? Well, for one thing, it helps us get it right, and we surely need that. Christians, the church, needs to get it right. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego made the confession that the God they served was able to deliver them from the king's terrible decree and power. This was a confession that the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, is Lord over the king, Babylon, and its gods. It's also a confession of deliverance. The Lord is a God who delivers his people from the powers of this world. We hear that deliverance in this story from Daniel, but God's deliverance from the powers of this world is revealed in a much fuller way with Jesus Christ. He takes on the powers of sin, death, and the devil. You think the fiery furnace is bad. Well, those powers are even worse. Sin, death, and the devil. He takes them on in this world, and he delivers us from all of them. Ephesians 1 speaks of God's power in Christ. The immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, and that's a a transcendent authority and power, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The other thing the power of God uh, does for us, for our confession of faith, is makes us speak out our confession of faith. Speak it out publicly. Cyprian was bishop of Carthage, in, which is northern Africa, in the 3rd century A.D. He lived at a time when the Roman Empire was idolatrous, persecuting the church, and Cyprian was one of those who was martyred by the Romans, put to death. And he said something that has been passed down in the church. He said, it's better to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord than believe in your heart. Now today, we might think it's just the opposite. Believing in your heart is better than to confess with your mouth. And that says a lot about our modern belief in the authenticity of the inner self. That's more authentic than what we would say outwardly. But for Cyprian and all those who were told by the Roman powers, deny Christ and you shall live, confession by mouth was far more significant than just believing it in your heart. Anyone could believe it in their heart back then. But only those who stood up and confessed it publicly and and spoke it out were the ones who were in danger. Today, it is much easier to believe in your heart than to stand up and make the confession of faith in Christ. The power of God's presence with us makes us proclaim it. It makes us speak it out. The power for the confession of the Christian faith to an idolatrous society comes from God. The story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego ends with the blessing of God. The king saw the the three preserved inside the burning furnace, and he called to them to come out of it. 
They survived the flames, and they were promoted in the king's court over their enemies. The king also affirmed their confession of faith in God. In verse 28, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and declared, uh, delivered his servants who trusted in him and said it not the king's command. The king declared that God, their God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was greater than his gods. And he made a decree that the Jews were protected in his kingdom. There's wonderful blessing in all of that, isn't there? God blesses our public confession of faith in him, and he blesses us for making it. But that doesn't mean we can expect to always be delivered from the coercion of idolatrous states. There are many other stories of the people of God making their confession of faith and being put to death for it. Cyprian and Polycarp were two of those in the early church. Confessing the faith that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and its Lord may very well mean that we will lose our property, our freedom, and even our lives. For us Christians, that's called the way of the cross. We follow Jesus who made the true confession and was put to death. And yet that doesn't prevent the blessing of God for us and for the confession of faith in Christ. God blesses us with eternal life with him and with his church. He blesses us with final deliverance from all of the powers of this world. The Lord also blesses the confession of faith in Christ so that others hear and believe and the church grows in this world. The Roman Empire persecuted the church and martyred its confessors, and over time, many converted, and the church filled the empire. China tries to control the church and its confession to make it serve China's own interests, but the confession of faith in Christ is spreading, and many of the Chinese people are converting. After our epistle lesson this morning in Revelation 13, with the picture of the beast trying to dominate the church, there's another picture. Revelation's full of all these scenes and pictures, these images. There's another picture of the church gathered before the Lamb of God in uh, chapter 14, and there are many voices coming from heaven spoken to the people of God in that, in that scene. Many, many different voices. One of them says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Another one says, Another one is a call to the saints to endure by God's power. And there's a heavenly voice that says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Go forth and confess the faith of Christ and the blessing of God be upon you in life and in death. Let us pray. Lord God, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand the faith of the church the faith the church has in Christ, and that they also may have grace and power to confess it in a society that often wants to squelch that faith. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I'd like to invite the um, Hannah and Matthew Cassidy and uh, Amy Lauren and the elders to come forward for baptism and reception of these three into the membership of the church.
hear these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't take this uh, sacrament upon ourselves. We don't, the church hasn't just created this. It's what the Lord has given us to do. And it is set apart. The Lord said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the, of the age. And hear these words from Holy Scripture. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all share in that one baptism into Christ, that one salvation, that one uh, body of Christ. Obeying the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, confident of his promises, we baptize those whom God has called. In baptism, God claims us and seals us to show that we belong to him. He frees us from sin and death, unites us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and by water and the Holy Spirit, we are made members of the church, the body of Christ, joined to his ministry. Let each one of you now remember your baptism, and even if you're like me, baptized as an infant and can't remember it, you can remember it in the sense of you're participating in it and know that your baptism is just as, as valid and true as the one that uh, Hannah is about to receive. That this is the sacrament that the Lord has given us and we that mark and signs upon us now. I'm going to um, ask all three of you vows um, um, that you take as coming into the church for membership. <coughs> Okay. So I ask you these, if you could please answer out loud. This is a confession of faith. So uh, for some of you, you're reaffirming your faith because you're taking vows, coming into the church, you've been a member of another church. Um, and uh, I think all three of you have professed your faith elsewhere, but uh, you reaffirm your faith with these vows. So please answer out loud. Do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and His doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? I do. Do you believe in one living and true God to whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh? I do. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness you are totally unfit and unable to come before God on your own, and you trust alone for salvation, not in yourself, but solely in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord, and do you promise that in reliance upon the grace of God you will serve Him with all that is in you, forsake the world, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? Do you promise to uphold the peace, purity, and unity of the church? and support it with your prayers, talents, and finances, and endeavor to model Christ's humility and self-sacrificing love. And the last one, do you promise to submit to the Lord, in the Lord, to the government of the church, and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life, according to the word of God, you would heed its discipline. All right. Um, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. I did put the Apostles' Creed in the bulletin. We're going to confess that faith together because it's appropriate to do that here. Um, and finally, there we go. Thank you.
Jesus. Say together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Put it in the wrong. No, we'll go ahead and sing again. Uh, hand number five zero five. I'm not ashamed of.
diaconal offering, so if the ushers could please reflect that. services where we have both the sacraments present, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Hannah is now able to come forward and receive the sacrament of communion. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Supper that we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. It's good for us to be reminded of these things. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to that bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation, that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. We remember that, we participate in that. We come to have communion with the same Christ, who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread who strengthens us unto eternal life. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. And thirdly, we come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste of the feast of love of which we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come. When with unveiled faces we shall behold him and be made like him in glory. Since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, we are exhorted to receive this supper in faith and love, mindful not only of Christ's sacrifice, but also of the communion of saints and our mutual obligations to one another as co-members of Christ's body, the church. It is my privilege to invite all who have been baptized, profess their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members in good standing of a Christian church, to come to this, our Lord's table. Join with me in giving thanks to God for our salvation and new life in Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. We do give you thanks, O Heavenly King, our Father Almighty as it is right and fitting for us so to do. You have created all things, and we serve and honor and praise your holy and beautiful name, and we raise our praise to you with the angels of heaven, the whole host of heaven, 
who sing before you, Holy, 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 God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Especially now, we remember and thank you that you sent your Son into this world. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was born a man. In majestic obedience, he rode into Jerusalem to die on the cross, and he was lifted up from earth to heaven as the King of our salvation. From there, he continues to reign now as the crucified and exalted Christ. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have led us out of sin, darkness, death, and condemnation into the life of your new creation. We come to this meal together confessing that faith that the church has confessed from early times. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And we thank you that even after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he did not abandon us, but he sent us your spirit. And so he is present with us now. We ask you to bless this cup and this bread with your Holy Spirit so that we are fed by Christ and nourished by him. As surely as we taste the bread and the cup of the Lord, Even so, may he nourish and refresh our soul for eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. And not only us, but his whole body, the church. And so, having communed with Christ and being strengthened by your grace, may we go out into the world to serve you in faith and love and make that confession of our faith. Our thanksgiving we offer to you in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. And with one voice we say together, Amen. Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Send us now into the world in peace. Grant us strength and courage to live, to love, and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 105. O God, we praise thee and confess.
king, make you faithful and strong to do his will, that you may reign with him in glory. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Good morning. We'll take a moment to look at the uh, calendar in the bulletin, starting with our Christian education classes today. Um, After today, with events as scheduled for the next next week and then Easter um, Sunday, we won't have classes. So this will be our last class for a few weeks. Um, There will be a Good Friday service at 1 o'clock at the church. Let me say something about that, because some of you are new. So that's the service where we come in, there's no accompaniment, the cross is not lit, so it reflects the nature of that that day, Good Friday. And we leave in silence, we don't talk to each other. So it's, it's the one time of the year that if you came then and never came any other time, you'd think we're rude people. But we're not. It's just it's recognizing um, that that's how the disciples fled from Jesus when he was crucified. So we, we sort of remember that and, and um, recognize that we are those kind of disciples. And yet, of course, the resurrection is around the corner and we know that Christ has forgiven us and called us to himself. So that's what will happen at the Good Friday service. Thank you. <clears throat> um, next week, after worship, we are going to hold our discussion, our congregational conversation about um, just the, the session's thoughts, um, included our conversations with most of you about the future of the church. So we will just kind of lay out that vision or, um, yeah, we'll call it a vision Um, next week after worship. Included in that meeting will be an official, we'll convene for an official meeting for the specific purpose of dissolving our call to Adam Ostella. We had many years ago called him as an evangelist to the church, and he was going to work at the uh, prison or the jail, I think at LTU. I think he still does visit the um, minister at the prison, but he's at our sister church in Brighton, and they want to call him as an associate pastor. So we need to officially, we're Presbyterians, we need to... We need to release him to do that. So a meeting for that purpose. And in order to have that meeting, we do need a quorum. So please attend that. 
I think that is all I have. Thursday night Bible study. That, well, the Bible study is on hold. Oh, okay. For about three weeks, I'm getting various things going on. Okay. Julie. Oh, yes. Um, don't know if the weather will be. That's Picnic is now the new code name for an unofficial fellowship dinner. It's the code name for bring your own lunch. Bring your own lunch, right. Because, because of the meeting, because of Easter, we would end up foregoing our normal monthly fellowship meal. And there was an uprising when we suggested that. And so while we're not having it per se, you're free after the congregational meeting to sit down and eat together. So, Heidi. Um, well, I was thinking of a lot of things because I can't help it. So, uh, 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 Hannah relayed a story today about some, someone that she knows that named their child Shatter. And when they were going through the airport, uh, the person that they were looking at all the names of the kids that were going through said, you do know about Shadrach. It relayed the whole entire story along with the gospel. And um, the mom of this child said, well, I know the story. And she goes, excuse me, this is not a story, this is an event. And it was just, you know, I was just like, that is really, really amazing. And Annie would relate that to me this week as we go through that passage. Uh, this pastor. And um, I just couldn't help it. This is an event. Yeah. It is an event. It happened. And then the other thing is, I gave everybody a little something here, and it's Hannah's birthday. And I want to say, you know, when when Rebecca was five, six years old, I asked her, you know, when it's a birthday of five or six years old, you say five or six people, right? They say the age, the number of people. I said, Rebecca, who would you like to invite to your birthday? Before we were done, we had the whole entire church invited because. There was an affection that we had for you all, and still do. And so she saw you as the people that come to her birthday party, and everybody came up still to this day thinking about how Randy and Elizabeth Carter went were at Rebecca's birthday party. I'm like, this is an amazing thing to think about. So now my, my middle baby is 30, on the 30th, for Golden And she is a newcomer family, but she does reflect on you all very favorably and can't help but compare us to where she is now. And that little piece of paper, I would like, I've got a jar back there that says wishes, and I would like you, if you don't mind, to put a thought on here. Not not blame No happy birthday. That's not allowed. But if somebody like Steve were to write, bless you with the holy goods, she would totally expect that from Steve Ryan. So anyway, I was just thinking, if you all get not mind, just put a little thought on there, you know, whether it's a verse or bless you with or something. And the wishes jar is out here, and just stick it in the wishes jar. And then for you that didn't get that, I'll give it to you now. But um, I just thought that would be a sweet thing to give to her on her, quote, golden birthday. So there you have it. Did, did that make any sense? Yes. That was a lot of things. I can't help it. Oh, boy. Now I just realized I have to give feedback on the streaming thing. Okay, Hannah's birthday. It's a surprise. She may read it. She may listen to it. She makes it. That's okay. Okay. All he said it's her birthday. She knows that. I know nothing. 
Okay, we're all set. Let's have some fellowship and then a uh, prompt. I'm saying this really just for Barbara Hannum. Uh, Start of Christian Ed.